Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to Susan Angel Miller, author of Permission to Thrive, about the death of her daughter, Laura, the brain tumor that Susan herself faced, and the powerful concept of post-traumatic growth. Also this week, I'm recalling a frustrating condition that grievers face. It's what the blog What's Your Grief calls a temporary inability to see rainbows. Are you able to see rainbows in the aftermath of your loss? I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Just a quick thank you as the CTA runs overhead to everyone who joined me on Monday for my Patreon hangout. I always love connecting with you live and answering your questions on grief and loss. This month, in the month of May, we talked about how hard it is to talk to family and friends for whom our loss seems way too big to handle. Recovering from Mother's Day, kind of having the Mother's Day hangover or the Mother's Day blues, and my personal grief greeting card rampage. And that's one of those things where you had to like be there to understand what that means. (laughs) Our next Patreon hangout is Monday, June 24th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. If you'd like to join in the group call, connect with other listeners of this show, and ask your own questions on grief and loss, all you have to do is pledge to support the podcast at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Any dollar amount you pledge will unlock the link to join us live, and the higher you pledge, the more you receive as a patron of the show. Something that's very popular right now is my weekly grief journaling prompts, which are released every single Monday, and that's for people pledging $3 or more per month. And if a behind-the-scenes grief community kind of that sense of growing together resonates with you as we're supporting this show moving forward, I would absolutely love to have you join me on Patreon. You can find the link to my Patreon page, plus so much more in the show notes for this episode or at shelbyforsythia.com. Alrighty, grief growers. So today I want to share a story with you. One of my Patreon supporters texted me this week and said, hey, I want to share the introduction episode of your show with some friends who've never listened before, but I can't seem to find it. Can you help me? And I said, oh my God, absolutely. And discovered that because of one button that I had clicked behind the scenes in the backend server magical software program of podcasting, coming back was only displaying my first 100 episodes in Apple Podcasts. And since about two weeks ago, I have exceeded the 
the a 100 episode mark, which is very exciting. But if you have this box checked, only your first 100 episodes will show. So and it started um, not deleting, but like removing earlier episodes. So episodes like episode one, the trailer for coming back, and episode two with Ariel Nobile were no longer showing up in the Apple store or in Apple podcasts. So I, I was like, Oh my gosh, and I took care of it and emailed my podcast support desk and everything got cleared up. And I got this Patreon supporter and listener what she needed for her people so she could like, keep spreading the word about coming back. But while I was on my Apple podcast page, I noticed something. It was a review a listener had written for the show. Now, I don't really ask for reviews. It's kind of like bad manners to ask for reviews, but I love when you leave them, grief growers. Reviews are these like super helpful things that make podcasts more discoverable in the Apple store. And your ratings and reviews of this show are why Coming Back is consistently ranked in the top five podcasts when anyone searches grief in the Apple store. And that's like every time I search grief, I'm like, just let's see if I'm still there. I am, among so many other incredible grief podcasters, some of whom have been on this show. And that's really incredible. And I can't thank you enough, grief growers, for continuing to share your thoughts about coming back online. And you all know from the emails I send and the communications I have on Instagram that I'm not really a stats person or a numbers person or a stars person. I do mark milestones, like when we've had uh, 50,000 downloads of coming back and we're heading towards, we're racing towards 60,000 right now, which is incredible. Um, But I'm not a person who like obsessively checks on rankings or ratings. With the exception of the one time I kind of threw a little party and wanted to get 25 reviews on Facebook by my 25th birthday back in 2017, I more or less just keep producing the show and every now and then something catches my eye and I'll dive into the data that's coming to the surface. And that's why this review stood out. I was on Apple Podcasts, I was fixing this problem, and then I was like, oh my god, I haven't read my reviews in a while, so why don't I now that I'm here? And this review in particular stood out to me, and I'm going to read it on the show today, and then I'm going to break it down, uh, because there's a lot of things that are contained here. And then there's a deep dive to this larger concept, which I'll get into in just a moment. This is a five-star review, which is the highest review you can leave, and this was left in Apple Podcast, and it reads, quote, I absolutely love this show, but I had to stop listening to Linda Finlay on 9-5-2018 after losing count of how many times she said that no one acknowledged or remembered her daughter, and then went on about her husband's support. Her husband is someone. She needs to get over this 28-year narrative that she is alone. I really thought she didn't have anyone. She is misleading people. There are people going through loss that truly have no one. She is so caught up in her story that she doesn't realize how conceited she sounds. I could not imagine seeking help from this woman. I'm so glad that this is the only episode that had this tone. And I hope that after I stopped listening, that Shelby gently reminded her that she did have someone. End quote. If you're thinking, wow, <laughs> Uh, you're not alone, grief growers. A few immediate thoughts on this review. Number one, if this is a review that you've written, grief grower, listener of the show, if this is your review, I am so sorry for whatever loss you're facing. It sounds like you might be one of those people who you speak of who truly has no one in the aftermath of loss, and that really sucks. I'm so sorry that you've experienced loss and that you've had any sort of need in your life for coming back. It's 
hard to grieve. It's hard to be here. It's even hard to listen to this show sometimes. I hope you've like tuned in and continued listening beyond my episode with Linda and continue to receive some kind of support and companionship from this work that I do. Secondly, if this is your review, thank you for leaving the show five stars and for mentioning that you love the show despite using up most of your available tech space to comment on this one conversation with Linda Finley. While comments are important, what other grievers and potential listeners look at when they're searching for new shows to listen to is the stars. So thank you for not marking the entire show down because of one episode that I created that did not resonate with you or your grief. As an artist, as a creator, as an entrepreneur, I really appreciate that. Third, getting into the meat of your review, never, never in a million thousand years is it my responsibility to tell people what is or is not truly true about their grief. I'm not here to quote unquote make people get a grip. I did not tell Linda Finley that she did indeed have someone to lean on after the death of her daughter because that's not my job as an interviewer, as a grief coach, or even as a friend to her. It's not my job to contradict someone's reality or circumstance. Just because you as a listener judge Linda Finley's story as 28 years of conceited solitude that she just needs to get over does not mean that I agree with you. And it certainly doesn't make it true just because you as a listener believe it to be so about her life. Also using the phrase quote unquote, get over in the context of grief. um, We don't really do that around here. That's not how coming back works. In grief, we don't get over our losses or our stories. We grow from them, knowing that our griefs and our stories have constructed the foundation that we stand on in some way. Fourth takeaway, if this is your review, I do want to mention something that you pointed out. And I think this is where we can all kind of learn together from your commentary. And I think this might be what you're ultimately getting at, even though you don't quite have the words for it. It's a real phenomenon that gravers face known as quote unquote, temporary inability to see rainbows. It was crafted by the blog What's Your Grief and refers to grievers' inability to see anything in the aftermath of loss as good, beautiful, helpful, pretty, or gratitude-inducing. The photo that What's Your Grief actually shows on their blog page is of a pair of people looking at a sunset on a beach, and one person is saying, wow, what a beautiful sunset, and the other person is saying, ah, meh. I want to get into this phenomenon at the top of the show today because I think this can often be what what other grievers and even outsiders are seeing when they look at us as grievers and we're saying, I'm alone, I'm isolated here, I can't take the solitude, no one understands. Because there's this crazy thing that happens when we literally cannot, because of the way our brains are wired in the aftermath of grief, we cannot see the forest for the trees. This temporary inability to see rainbows is something that happened to me in my grief. Despite the fact that I had my dad and my sister and my aunts and my uncles and coworkers and friends and friends of friends and podcasts and books, I felt I had absolutely no one to lean on or talk to in the aftermath of my mom's death. I could see these people around me. I could see these resources, but actually connecting with them, resonating with them as good things, things I should be grateful for, things that have the potential to support me, no, didn't happen. That connection was not made in my brain. Grief does this thing sometimes where it's like a big, heavy, suffocating blanket with blinders on it, and we cannot see peripherally around us 
to all the help and support that we have. Even if we're in the middle of a parade thrown just for us with confetti blowing everywhere and ice cream being dished out by the bucketful and the most gorgeous rainbow we've ever seen happening directly over our heads, we, when we're grieving, cannot see shit. It does not register on our radar because our radar for emotion and experience has been hijacked by, you guessed it, grief. In my work with the grief recovery method, I learned that the number one experience universally that grievers have in the aftermath of loss is a feeling of isolation. Even in a house full of people, grievers feel totally alone. That's because no two relationships are alike, and no two griefs are alike. Even if you lost the same person, say, a daughter, your griefs, mother and father, caretaker and protector, carrier and witness, they're totally different. Even if you lost the very same person, the relationship that you specifically had with them and the way that you specifically grieve them are going to be different from the people around you. I can see how Linda would tell this story of being alone after the death of her daughter. I don't think it's misleading. And I don't think it disqualifies her from being capable of doing grief work. I think for her, in the grief of losing her daughter, Aubrey, her experience of having no one is very, very real. Even surrounded by rainbows and love and support, we as grievers can often feel like we have absolutely no one in the midst of our grief. I had the pleasure and honor of working with Linda Finley in March on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise, And I know, and everyone that went with me knows, that her level of caring and dedication to grievers and the entire experience of crafting the bereavement cruise is incredible. My heart is continually broken each time she brings up the loss of her daughter. And while I'm not sure if this feeling of being alone directly fuels her desire to connect with other grievers, it's super, super crystal clear from the way she speaks and leads that she wants to provide a connected experience to anyone grieving a loss. So I will say this will be a small plug here. If you're thinking of setting sail on the bereavement cruise in 2020, I strongly suggest you do it. If for nothing else than to just be (laughs) in the presence of Linda Finley. I'm curious about a lot of things this week, Grief Growers. This review has stirred up a lot of things in me and in this phenomenon of grief. Have you experienced this feeling of temporary inability to see rainbows? Have you told yourself a story of darkness or isolation or loneliness, even though on the outside, it might not appear true to others. You might look like that you're surrounded by things, but you don't feel it. Has someone ever told you to tell another grieving person to deny their reality and get over a story or a belief about their lives? Have you ever left a review for coming back on Apple Podcasts? I'd love to hear from you. I'll be posting these questions and more in the Grief Growers Garden on Facebook this week, so I hope you'll join us there and contribute to the conversation. And it always amazes me how much can come through and be communicated in just a few sentences. To the person who wrote this review, if you're tuned in today, thank you for sharing your thoughts through a review. I feel honored to have read them and responded to them on the show today. I hope your grief is kind to you and that you're finding your own support system in the midst of your loss or losses, whether that includes coming back or not.
If you'd like to read more on temporarily unable to see rainbows, check out the blog post from What's Your Grief that I've included in the show notes for today's episode. Up next, my conversation with Susan Angel Miller, who lost her daughter Laura 10 years ago in 2009. Grief is setting sail twice on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises to join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea. Request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruise's organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Susan Angel Miller is a first-time author who, 10 years ago, never thought she'd have a story worth telling. That changed dramatically when her 14-year-old daughter Laura died suddenly from a cancerous brain tumor. Susan's book Permission to Thrive details her experiences ranging from heartbreak to happiness, and she's learned it's possible to hold both joy and sorrow in your hands at the same time. Since the beginning of this year and her book launch, Susan has been busy leading presentations on grief and empathy, post-traumatic growth, and the miracle of organ donation. Over the past two decades, and while raising her two younger daughters, Susan Angel Miller has served in many leadership positions in Milwaukee's nonprofit organizations and built a community which ended up rallying behind her and her family when they needed their support the most. Susan is married to her exceptionally supportive and resilient husband, Ron, and they are the proud parents of Sarah, Rachel, and their forever beloved, Laura. Your book, Permission to Thrive, uh, I took in in about 48 hours because your story, this memoir of having permission to thrive and permission to do so many other things in the aftermath of loss was just so it was like full of the experience, like every single page I turned was full of the experience of grief, whether it was these racing thoughts and anxiety of, oh, now that this has happened, will it happen to me? But also this, do I have permission to feel joy? It was just this very like wrestly book, literally laying out, it's like you took your brain out onto a table and let us look at it as you were experiencing grief. And I think that's just such a cool insider's perspective into what loss looks like in the moment, because I think so many uh, books on grief are written, you know, 10, 15, 20 years after the fact, and something about the perspective has softened or the memories aren't quite all there. And we got these teeny tiny little personal snippets of your days and your flashbacks, and even like smells and sights that would come back. And I just think it's so cool. So I am just delighted to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And this is one of the you mentioned how um, you know you're brought back into the moments of when my daughter Laura passed away and all the different emotions that you feel after such a tragic event. And I think that that is how I healed from all of the the pain and the heartbreak is just by talking to people and sharing the awkwardness. Yeah, for sure. And it we don't often hear that grief is an awkward experience, but it is. Yes. Um, so after Laura died so suddenly, 
Uh, we live in a, a pretty small, closely connected community. And I still had two younger daughters who were 12 and nine at the time. And I we needed to keep parenting them, which meant that I had to keep driving them to school and they were nine and 12. And so I knew I needed to keep being part of the community and going grocery shopping and um, just going around town. And I didn't, I didn't want to have those pity looks at me. And I knew that I was going to get them. And I didn't want that elephant in the room and that awkwardness. So I just sort of willed myself to go up to people that I knew and parents who had been parents of children in Laura's grade. And I would just go right up to them and I would say, how are you doing? And how's your daughter doing? And you could just tell that they would be relieved that I um, had just sort of started talking to them at first. And then I would even bring up Laura's name because I was still her mom and I still wanted to brag about her. I still wanted to talk about her. And they, you could tell they were very relieved that I'd done that. I definitely want to talk about this permission that we have to continue speaking the names of our people, because in one story that you told, I believe it was about Passover or um, another dinner where the entire evening happened and no one said Laura's name. And like you, you stormed out in anger, understandably. And, and I've been in these moments myself where I'm looking around the table. I'm like, doesn't anyone know that she's gone? Like just this baffled... And it's, it's like in grief, we almost become uh, unable to speak the name ourselves, but we're so desperately wanting others to say their names and remember them as much as we are, because it's, it's like a solo agony on the inside. So I'm wondering, um, what prompted you to start speaking her name, or was it just something that never stopped? I, I don't think it ever stopped. I think... Um because she died so suddenly, she died from a brain tumor that just came on from a couple of weeks of headaches and then bringing her to the hospital. And basically she stopped breathing the day we brought her in. So she had been in school on a Tuesday afternoon and basically um, in a coma and on life support on Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday evening. So it was like a car crash rather than a brain tumor death. And immediately when she, when she died, we just were obviously in shock, but it still felt like she was still alive. It felt like she was at college or at a summer program. And so, of course, I wanted to talk about her because I felt her presence. I felt like she was still there. Um, and I did learn that um, when I went around town, especially in the grocery store, that was, those were one of the, the hardest times because I knew I would run into people and I didn't mind if they brought up Laura's name. In fact, I, I wanted them to. Um, I think from the other person's perspective, they always, they, they think that the person who's in grief um, will, will cry or be sad if they mention the deceased person's name. And you know, I don't quite understand that because I was thinking about Laura 24-7. And how could I not be thinking about her? And I, I wanted people to ask me about her. So that's one of the things I've learned to, to tell people um, after writing the book is definitely bring up the person's name. And, and even if you're going to write a, um, you know, a, a condolence card, it's great to write to um, send a card. Just don't, just don't sign your name and be done with it. Write a little story or a couple of sentences about the person. I love hearing stories about Laura even to this day. 
I want to come back to this concept of sudden death being like a car crash, because that was something that, I mean, I'm getting chills now as I'm saying it, because it's not this, your brain doesn't get the time to watch them die. And so they're literally alive one moment and not the next. And it's very much like a car crash. And that was your husband that mentioned that, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. He, I, I think that's so wise. It just, it upended every rule that we thought existed in the world. You know, um, we, we hear about people getting diagnosed and dying suddenly, but usually it doesn't happen that way. Usually if it is a diagnosis, there's some time to process it and um, come to terms with it and then be able to say your goodbyes. And for us, it was um, just the opposite. It was, we didn't, we didn't expect that um, in a million years, uh, not to our daughter who was our oldest and, and doing so great in school. And, and she was our oldest and obviously every, every child is so precious. And to have someone just die that suddenly, it, uh, it just ripped our hearts out. So, and we, we learned um, that we were, you know, we were the same people that we were on a Tuesday that we were on that Wednesday night or when the doctors finally declared her brain dead. We still wanted our friends to be around us. We didn't want them to ignore us and pull back because they felt that awkwardness about grief. Um, if we had lost our friends at that point, we would have lost so much more. Uh, so we really, we really appreciated them listening to us and going, just sitting with us and talking and let and listening, listening, not judging how we were coping. Um, and even even in those first couple of uh, days, I still remember a friend coming up to me and saying, "Well, you'll smile again one day," and I just thought that's that's such a low ceiling, a low, a low ceiling for the rest of my life. I mean, you just had, gave me the lowest bar in the world. <laughs> and, you know, we had 40 or 50, we have 40 or 50 years to live. And to think that smiling would be the height of our joy seemed so depressing. And, and even more so because we had so many people around us during those first couple of weeks after her death, we had already smiled. And in fact, we had already laughed. And that felt, it made me feel very guilty as if we shouldn't have been doing that because our daughter had died and how could we be in the least bit happy? But in those first couple of weeks, you're just in complete shock. I want to talk about uh, the physical anxiety of grief. This is something that came up quite a lot in your book, not only for you, but for your daughter's as well, especially immediately after Laura's death. And it's something that uh, Megan Devine came on the show about a year ago and talked about having uh, chest pains and feeling ill and feeling like she was dying after the death of her partner, Matt. And it's a, it's a, I thought I was dying after the death of my mom. It, it not only, death not only forces us to stare into the fact that we're going to die, but it oftentimes can make us feel like we're dying right now. Um, so can we talk about this both the brain restlessness, but also the body's experience of, especially like a sudden death trauma. Yeah, I, I, I definitely experienced that physical heaviness and the pressure on my chest. Um, I remember being in our house with some cousins from California there, and one of the women um, is a doctor, 
And I remember asking her, um, was I having a heart attack? Because my chest felt so heavy and my, I was, my, my heartbeat was racing and I was breathing hard. And she just told me that it was normal to have those types of experiences after a death. And, you know, the feeling did pass, but in general, there was a weirdness that surrounded me for probably the first six months after Laura died. It felt like a lump in my throat. It felt like I wanted to rip my skin off. It was that um, strong of a feeling. And I, I had to kind of just just go with it. And, and, and you learn very quickly that each person is grieving in their own time at their own pace. And I think that is a very difficult piece to understand. Uh, here I was the mom and I was outwardly grieving. And my husband and two other daughters dealt with it in a little bit different way, a little bit more privately. And I had to really remind myself that that was okay, that I didn't have to manage anyone else's grief but my own, and that we really are alone in that pain and we have to figure it all out for ourselves. No one else can fix it for us. It's really tricky because there's almost like a there's a low-grade paranoia that sets in that you just have to learn how to live with. Well, I, I often say that you, you have to live with the fear and not in fear. I think that's important. Uh, and, and with what we experienced, Laura was one of our three daughters, and here she had experienced something so horrific, having a brain tumor. And we were told that it was a, a rare type of childhood cancer and that it wasn't genetic. But that's hard to conv- convince your brain that if a child has a headache, that it's not the symptom of a brain tumor. And we were very frightened that a similar thing could happen to either of our other daughters or ourselves. And we had to just manage that, that anxiety and that fear, even though we knew now all the rules were, you know, we didn't, we couldn't rely on the, the normal rules of life that we had relied on before Laura died. And so, especially when one of our daughters would tell us that they had a headache, which is a normal symptom for teenagers to have or for anyone to have. And I would just go into a complete meltdown because I was so afraid that that headache would be something so much more severe. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't handle that. Well, and it, it speaks to this experience of well, we thought it was rare before, and then all of a sudden it wasn't. Why shouldn't that be true again? All of a sudden our brain makes that association like, you're trying to comfort me and say that doesn't happen when it just did. I have evidence for it now. Terrible, horrific evidence. Exactly. It's hard to convince your your body that something isn't true when you've experienced that horrific event so quickly and so, so suddenly and traumatically. So we had, you know, over time I had to learn to just live with that new reality that yes, life can get upended very suddenly. And I had to just learn to understand that, that our society constructs our life so that we can wake up every day and think that one day is going to be, that just because one day is good, that the next day is going to be good. And the reality is, is that's not the case. Uh, we have to learn to live with that uncertainty and that change can happen whenever. And it's, uh, it, 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 we're just, it is out of our control. 
we, we think that we're in control of our life and we need to feel that way, but the reality is that's not how the world works. I want to transition now into your story. Uh, you and I were talking on the mic about how I got to about the middle or the last third of the book, and you went into your own experience with having a brain tumor. And I was like, where's the part where I turn the page and find out she's going to wake up from a bad dream? And I was so incredibly floored that this was something that railed through your family, not once and took your daughter, but twice and impacted you as well. And they were totally different. And yet the experience of it, I'm like, as I was reading, I was like, my God, this has to feel like deja vu, but on the worst absolute level. Yes. And yes. <laughs> um, three. Uh, so we grieved for Laura for a couple of years and we started getting back our sanity and normalcy as a, our family and we were surviving and I would even say thriving. We just were continuing our lives and trying to reclaim as much of the lives that we loved as possible. You know, we, would always, we always have that hole in our heart and it doesn't feel like our family's complete, but we were gaining back our normalcy. And then in uh, September of 2012, three years, about three years after Laura died, I started having headaches and I didn't think too much of it. And then they kept coming back and I would take Tylenol or I would have a glass of wine and they would go away for a little bit. When I got woken up in the middle of the night or the early morning hours, I knew that something didn't feel quite right because one of the symptoms of brain tumors I had I had learned is that the headaches often come in the middle of the night and early morning um, just because of the way the cerebral pressure is in your head and how it's affected by a tumor. And I still didn't want to believe anything was wrong and I didn't want to worry my husband and I especially didn't wor want to worry about my, my children. Uh, and I was planning my third daughter's bat mitzvah at the time that was going to take place in early November. And I didn't want to pull the rug out from under them by having to cancel the event. And I went to my doctors and they all almost patted me on the shoulder and said, Susan, your daughter had brain tumor. You know, you don't. And I just believed them. And I tried to push it out of my mind. But 10 days after the bat mitzvah, and the headaches still weren't going away, so I couldn't blame them on the stress anymore. And finally went to a friend who's a radiologist, and I had asked him if he could read the MRI results uh, right away because I didn't want to worry anymore. And, uh, and he came back and he, he said, I can't sugarcoat this, Susan, but you have an aggressive brain tumor. And if that's not a scary diagnosis, I don't know what is. It's absolutely horrifying. And again, I was just waiting for this point in the book where I was like, and then she's going to wake up and say it was all a bad dream. Because for as much uh, conversation early in the book where you spoke about this anxiety of, I'm terrified every time my daughters have a headache, I have a headache, you know, all of these other things of, you know, the rare happened. So who's to say it can't happen again? And here's these doctors telling you the same thing, like, oh, that probably won't happen again. There's, you know, a one in two million chance that that's even possible that you can have two brain tumors in the same family. I was I was just waiting for this part. I was like, and then she wakes up, and it just never happened. And I was like, oh my god! I literally felt my heart drop to my shoes when I read this. I was like, this is absolutely wild. And can you kind of lay out for us 
as you did in the book, the the similarities and differences between the two, because my first thought was like, oh my God, it is the same. It is genetic. It's, you know, all these other things. And then it turned out that it wasn't kind of, but there were some weird similarities, like the amount of years they predicted it had been there in relation to Laura's right. death. Right. Well, so when I got diagnosed, uh, the radiologist fortunately was able to tell me that he thought it was um, a mini- something called a meningioma, which is a tumor that is almost always benign. And so that was a little bit of a comfort as I was raced to the hospital. But you, when you have a brain tumor and your daughter died of a brain tumor, that's very difficult, again, to have your brain believe that you're not going to die as well. So the strange part about us both having tumors, and I've been told that they're not related, is that Laura was rushed to the hospital on a Wednesday and I was also told to go directly to the hospital from the MRI clinic on a Wednesday. Laura was uh, scheduled to have brain surgery two days later on a Friday and I ended up having brain surgery on a Friday. So that was a little weird. And so going through my brain surgery and recovery was very similar to what we'd experienced with Laura. The same people were around, uh, family and friends, and it just was a different outcome, fortunately for me. Um, Laura's case had gone from bad to worse very quickly, and, and my story went from a horrific diagnosis to me getting better awfully quickly, and that was... That in a in a weird way connected me to to Laura in this strange way, and also allowed her death to become lighter for me after having gone through something so similar to hers. But hers was very virulent cancer that had already spread, and where she was not able, she just wouldn't have been able to recover, no matter what. And whereas mine was the, if you're going to get a brain tumor, I was told this is the best kind of brain tumor to get. And so they removed it and I recovered fairly quickly. So it was, it was a bizarre set of circumstances. That's for sure. It's just so, I mean, the word that just keeps coming to me is wild or (laughs) I have an uncle in Arkansas who's actually a contributor to this podcast on Patreon. Hello, uncle Albert. Uh, And he uses the word unbelievable and you say it because it can mean either something really incredible or really, really awful, but no matter what it is, it is unbelievable. And Mm -hmm. it's, but it is, it's your life. I'm like, you're living it. So um, yeah, unbelievable. And actually that's what really prompted me to write my book is that a couple of days after I returned home from the hospital, I woke up my husband and I said, I need to get this story out. I found this new purpose because I had my own, I had this truly incredible, unbelievable story, as you mentioned. And I felt like there were lessons to be learned through the story. It wasn't just about death. It was about me going through something so scary as well. And then all the lessons I learned from it. Uh, And most of those lessons had to do with my community and friends and family coming to help us out again. They had already been there once through Laura's death and helping bring meals and calling me and emailing me and, and walking with me and listening and being so supportive. And that is what helped me heal from Laura's death and all that grief. And then when I 
<laughs> told, we told the same people that I had a brain tumor and no one believed it. They thought it was a sick joke. They thought that their email had been hacked or something. And, but even during my recovery, they were there again for me to help drive me to the physical therapy appointments and to help bring dinner to us or drive my kids around. And that felt like such a blessing. And it really made me realize the, the, the truths of the universe of, you know, friendship is so important and love and being at one with the universe and just how to be compassionate about people and have deep friendships and be authentic. All these things that we know are true, um, but I felt them in every cell of my cell of my body. Uh, and I learned that some of what I experienced is called post-traumatic growth. Let's definitely get into post-traumatic growth because one of the quotes that I highlighted from your book is in chapter 11 called Shattering Illusions. And it's like the simplest sentence, but it really, I'm getting chills again. It really speaks to the radical nature of your experience. And it says, Laura's death didn't signify the end of the world, just the end of the world I had known. And it's really hard, especially when you're so close, like your nose is still touching that grief that happened. It's so hard to see that this is not the end of the world. It's the end of the world as I know it. And those are two very different things. Right. Well, and you need to, what I've, we had to learn is this was our reality and we, we couldn't, get Laura back no matter how much we wanted to. And as my mother often says, it is what it is. And I had to learn to accept that this was our new reality and that we really didn't have a choice in how we responded. I mean, now I understand that we did have a choice. We just didn't see it at the time because we still very much knew we needed to keep parenting our two younger daughters we, we didn't want to sacrifice their futures to the death of their older sister. And we just kept parenting them. And looking back, if we had stopped parenting them for even a small amount of time, you know, people would have understood that, but it would have severely, it would have created a domino effect that would have made all of our lives that much harder going forward. So it it, it really was a... It was a, a learning process, that's for sure. So for people who haven't heard this term before, post-traumatic growth, can you kind of lay out what it is and maybe some examples of what that looked like in your world? Sure. About a year after my brain surgery and recovery, I was talking to my sister-in-law who deals with veterans who are returning from combat and acclimating back to civilian life. And she was just talking to me and said, well, you've heard of post-traumatic growth, haven't you? And I had never heard those three words strung together that way. I had always heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. And when I heard those words, post-traumatic growth, I just felt a relief, almost a relief of guilt I'd been harboring over the past maybe five or six years. I had been feeling guilty that I had been thriving, um, not only surviving, but thriving uh, even after the death of a child and the diagnosis and surgery uh, to remove a brain tumor. So uh, 
what I learned when once she told me that term, I, I Googled it right after she left. And each time I read another description of post-traumatic growth, it it just wowed me because I had experienced almost every one of the traits of the growth. And some of those are having the deeper friendships and a renewed sense of purpose and sense of meaning in your life, reordering your priorities, not having the little things in life get you down as much anymore, having more compassion for other people. And and probably the largest for me is just having gratitude for what I still had and um, you know, turning what I had into enough. So uh, what I did learn about post-traumatic growth is it doesn't mean that everyone experiences it or experiences it at the same way or in the same extent. And no one should judge another person if they don't experience that. It also doesn't mean that because we had experienced the growth or the enlightenment or the wisdom, whatever you call it, it didn't mean that we weren't also in grief or distress at the same time. I've really learned over the years that you can hold joy and you can hold suffering at the same time. And that is just how life is. It's just how messy emotions are. You, you have to just learn to balance out the, the good and the bad. So this, the, the, the concept of, of post-traumatic growth just revolutionized the way that I thought about going through trauma or tragedy. And it made me determined more than ever to write the book because it wasn't anymore a story of grief and loss. It was a story of growth and the potential for hope and, and getting beyond resilient, getting almost better than how you were before. Not that you would have wanted the bad event to happen in the first place. We'd never would have wanted to lose Laura since we did lose Laura, acknowledging that we had grown from the event really gave me a sense of, I don't know, pride or just a sense of that things were going to be all right. I think this is the perfect time to segue into your relationship with Trish, who we've not yet mentioned on this interview today. And that was one of the biggest through lines in the book and on your website as well is your relationship with her after, during Laura's death. Uh, so can you tell that story and share this project that you're so passionate about? Well, you can tell the book has quite a lot of plot. Um, yes. Oh my goodness. Than- I'm so excited for Grief Growers to read it because I keep <laughs> referring back to it. I'm like, it's because I'm still processing it. It was so amazing. The story of Trish began when... On Saturday, uh, February 21st of 2009, when the doctors had told us that Laura was basically was brain dead, that was a legal term. She her brain wasn't working anymore, but her heart was still pumping. They, an organ donor coordinator, came into our room and asked us if we would consider donating Laura's organs. And at the time, we were obviously in shock the worst day of our lives. And here someone was asking us to donate her organs. And we, as a family, we, we knew that organ donation was a noble and a, you know, a noble concept and something that could save other people's lives, but it was an abstract concept. And it was um, a decision that we never in a million years thought we'd have to make for our family, for our daughter. And so our, we, we talked about it and we asked our rabbi what he thought about how Judaism would 
view organ donation. And he told us that it was probably the highest mitzvah to help another help another person if it could save the life of a person that that was something that Judaism very much respected and at the same time we were talking our 12-year-old daughter Sarah entered the conversation and and just was really passionate about telling us that if 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 Laura's organs could save anyone's life why would we not decide to to do that and i think she kind of pushed us over the the edge to making the decision to donate Laura's internal organs and by the end of the afternoon, they had finally found a match for her liver. And uh, Laura's liver ended up being flown out all the way to New York City, where a woman who was, is a special education teacher, a 40-year-old woman, uh, her liver had gone into failure 10 days earlier, and she had been in a liver coma for 10 days. Uh, her, the drugs that she'd been taking to cure her leukemia had killed her liver, and you can't live without a liver. There's no dialysis for a liver. And uh, her husband was actually going to say goodbye to her in the hospital and uh, on that Sunday morning. And nurses were rushing around her room, and he wondered what was happening. And, he, and, and the nurses said, well, didn't you hear our livers become available? So uh, Trish, uh, really, Trish entered our lives because she, we we learned about her, uh, we learned uh, about her her gratitude for the organ when she wrote us a thank you letter three months later. It's such an incredible connection that you have because, and I love that your husband was kind of an instigator for continuing this relationship in in the book and your girls too, um, because it's like once you found out who she was, what the circumstances were their drive to meet her was like, we got to, we got to see her. We have to hug her and hear the story and, and everything what that looks like. And I don't know, uh, from reading the book, I don't know if I got the sense that you were totally on board from the beginning, but then once it happened, it was like, wow. Yeah. It, it's been a huge, a huge, uh, motivator for our family, a huge sense of healing. It made, it helped to make sense of something that seemed so senseless to us and so we couldn't really know Trisha's identity uh, for probably the first year, 18 months. Uh, we could communicate, but only through the organ donor networks. So we couldn't know her name or, or where she lived or her phone number. And then finally, when we did learn it, uh, our fam- my, my husband and kids wanted to call her right away the first night that we knew her information. And we all got on the phone and were able to talk. And it was very emotional. And she... It was just great. She knew how to talk to our kids because she's a, a teacher. And we decided to keep in touch and to actually meet one day. And that's what happened uh, over spring break in 2011, two years from when Laura passed away. We met in New York City uh, at a, in a hotel room. And we met her and her husband, Gary. And we re-coordinated and, and started sitting down and, and telling our stories again to each other. And it was quite extraordinary, and we all got along almost as if we were family. So in the years uh, since then, we've seen each other probably four or five times, and we're going to go out there again this summer to, to visit and reconnect. And it's just been incredible that, that even though Laura died, Laura really is the hero and has 
her, she's alive in, in a special way in that she saved another woman's life. And that has been incredibly healing for us. And it's made us want to increase the education and awareness of the need for organ donors and really begun to understand how many people are still on the waiting list and how many people could be saved if an organ became available and more people would agree to become organ donors. So I wonder if we could take a quick second and go through maybe a couple of myths that society believes to be true right now about organ donation or maybe things that are outdated uh, and then some truths, the reality. Well, I think the, the biggest myth that is out there that might prevent people from agreeing to be an organ donor they think that they think that the hospital or the doctors won't try as hard to save them as the patient. They almost think that that the people who are wanting the organs, who are going to be recovering the organs, will jump in and and overrule the the healthcare of the of the patient of themselves. And that is, it can't be farther from the truth. Uh, they're two independent teams of doctors. One is working on the patient, totally concerned about the patient's health. And the organ coordinators aren't brought in uh, until the patient has been declared legally brain dead. And there's a special test to, to figure out if that person has died um, they're on a machine uh, and their heart's still pumping, which allows the organs to be to be fed the oxygen and the blood, but the two teams are completely separate. And I'm trying to think of another another myth that is out there. I think one of the ones that came up for me uh, when you were going down the list of things you had to reckon with, because literally you and your husband, Bron, were handed this paperwork either as Laura was dying or immediately afterwards, like you should consider it and I'll come back in an hour and see what you think. And you were like, what, 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 what? Like all of a sudden, all of this, this extra decision on top of everything that already had happened was, was thrust into your hands. Um, and the thing that I was most curious about was that I believe there's either seven or eight organs that can be donated in the human body. And I guess I only ever associate like I could probably name three, like heart, lungs, liver, but things like the corneas in our eyes can be donated. And I was like, wait a minute, that's really cool. I mean, really weird, but really cool. Um, and uh, there's a comedian, John Mulaney, that does a sketch uh, about Jerry Orbach from, I believe, Law & Order SVU, uh, was an organ donor and donated his uh, eyes were uh, given to two different New Yorkers. And so they were given the gift of sight because of Jerry Orbach's eyes. Um, and he donated his corneas and he does this really funny skit about how, wouldn't it be funny if the two people who had each of his eyes somehow fell in love in a romantic comedy in New York city. Um, but so it's just this, this funny normalization of, of organ donation, because it's something that like, I, I went to the DMV at 16 and checked that box, like, yes, make me one. And so now I am registered as an organ donor for the rest of my life. Um, but I think it's something that, that squicks people out a little bit. Um, well, I, yeah. Well, I think, so what happened is we were given many choices about what we wanted to, uh, what we would allow to be donated. Um, 
And yes, I think there are seven or eight organs that can be donated, but there are also a lot of other choices, including the corneas. And that was one area that I wish we had learned more about when we were asked to donate her uh, Laura's corneas. I think my husband and I thought it was the whole eye that would be donated. And at the time, it just, we couldn't imagine seeing Laura's eyes in someone else. It just seemed so invasive and so uh, emotional. And and since then, I've learned a lot more. And the cornea is, I believe, just the, the outer layer of the eye. And it, it, it uh, if, if we had that choice again, I would have, um, have donated her corneas. But what I have learned is that uh, tissue and ligaments and skin, there are just there's quite a list of other other um, parts of the body that can be donated that can help uh, help another person in need. You know, every every I think it's uh, I think there are about 114,000 people on the national waiting list that are waiting for organs, and every 10 minutes someone goes on that list, and each person each person can actually save eight people's lives and help improve the lives of 50 other people. So there's just a tremendous amount that can just can be a positive domino effect and a just life-saving, miraculously life-saving if um, those organs are able to be recovered and the, the family members agree to, to donate them. And so I think it's very important that that not only should people think about registering to become organ donors, and you can do that on your license, or you can do that through registerme.org. You can also go on your iPhone and go into your medical ID app, and you can you can register as simply as going on your iPhone. And the most important piece, in addition to registering, is to talk about talk to your family about your wishes. Uh, because those are the people that are, are typically going to be around your bedside, bedside, and they're the ones that are going to be able to, to push to have your wishes um, be known. And that's really important too. And, and it's like remarkably easy, but it's a thing that people don't have to think about. And so they don't. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's really incredible. And I'm like, for me, I'm like, well, I'm done using this. So why not you guys? <laughs> It's the ultimate form of recycling. I've gotten all, oh my gosh, that's a great way to phrase it. I've gotten all I've got to get out of this guy. Exactly. Well, and you know, we talk about the growth from trauma and which has been such a hopeful concept to me. And one of the aspects of how Laura's life has changed our family uh, is um, my 12, the, my middle daughter, who was the one that was uh, advocating for us to donate Laura's organs She's now 22 and started a uh, chapter of uh, an organ donation advocacy chapter when she was in college. It's called SODA, Student Organ Donation Advocates. And then when she graduated from college, she decided to go national with the program. And now there are 15 chapters of SODA across the country. And their purpose and goal is to increase the awareness for the need of organs and really have a forum where students can discuss all all elements of the process and all the different ethical dilemmas and uh, and just how how people can increase the registration rate 
So it's really been a positive in our family. It's given her purpose and a whole renewed purpose that she might not have had otherwise. And it's such a permission to, I'm, I'm working on this in my own book, Permission to Grief, but permission to take our grief outside of the body. So to do things like start charities or do walk runs or 5Ks or um, organizations or, or informational groups at some level that are like, hey, if you didn't know, now you know. Now it's available to you with this, these information and these organizations and um, just, yeah, permission to let our stories and let our grief live outside of our bodies and be absorbed and heard by other people. Well, and, and I, I have to say, I think that's one of the most meaningful aspects of having published the book and talking about the book at different uh, bookstores and different book clubs and organizations is my book is allowing uh, people to speak, giving them permission to tell their story and to be heard. And, and that's a powerful, um, a powerful permission to allow other people to speak their truth and to allow them to talk about things that normally people want to push under the rug. I think especially many years ago, uh, people just didn't want to admit that anyone in their family had cancer or died, uh, died of a suicide or an overdose, or even just, uh, even just died of old age. And I think our society is getting better, but it's still not there in terms of doing grief well. I think we have a long way to go, and I think it's important all the books that are being written about grief to uh, take away that awkwardness and allow people to be more authentic and vulnerable and lowering their bar and making people realize that everyone has their issues. When I was talking to people, I had nauseam after Laura died and I needed to connect with people because that's the only thing that helped me relieve the the weirdness and the the grief. Whenever I would talk about Laura's death, the person across the table from me would be very, very interested in hearing my story. And then invariably they would say to me, well, my situation can't compare to yours, but, and then they would talk about their divorce or their career disappointment or their family having been killed in a car crash. And it, it allowed them to tell their story because I no longer felt like I was, they didn't look at me as though I was perfect anymore. I had been vulnerable and shared my story and they felt then comfortable sharing theirs. I think that's so powerful because it speaks to like the instant we show our cards, people are like, Oh, here's all mine. Like, Oh my God, that's so exciting. We feel like we can all breathe around each other again. Um, just that, allowance to be human. Uh, I have one question left for you before we tell everybody listening where they can find you. And that is, I was not ignorant to the dates that were at the top of each chapter in the book. And I am super aware that as of this year, you all are 10 years out from Laura's death. And I'm wondering, I know in one chapter of the book, you talked about how the anniversary itself holds no magic, like no power, like no mystical more or less dates have as much power as we give them. Um, But I'm wondering if there's something that Laura has asked you to learn, prompted you to learn, or um, 
anything that's that's come forward really strongly in these past 10 years that you wish maybe you knew then or that you're glad that you know now? Well, it, it's, it's kind of strange how the, the publishing of the book came almost exactly around the 10-year anniversary. I couldn't have planned it if I had tried. And I think the book has helped keep Laura close to us in a way that is just really meaningful to me. She, it, it, it feels like I'm keeping alive her legacy. Um, over time, so there was a, a moment that I talk about in the book where a couple months after Laura died, I was searching through my dresser drawer and came across a chain bracelet that she had always worn that we must have gotten, the hospital must have uh, given us, given to us after she died. And it was one of her favorite bracelets, favorite pieces of jewelry. And I um, put it on and I haven't really taken it off since. And at first the bracelet felt very heavy on my arm. And over the years, it's just, in it's, um, become something that I've become so accustomed to that it feels like it's part of my body. And in the same way, it just feels like Laura is now embedded in my DNA. And so I think about her often now. I I think about her, but it doesn't feel quite as heavy and as sad. It feels as though she's she's part of me and she always will. And I, I I think that that is something that I wish I had known in those first months and years of the racking, horrific grief where I never thought it was going to get better. And it took a while for it to get better. It took a couple of years, but it's now been 10 years. And I think we have adjusted to that new reality, but knowing that she still is with us and that the fact that she also was an organ donor and saved a person's life and that we have continued on in such a strong way while keeping her memory alive. It just, I don't know, it, it's something that is very um, fulfilling to us and it makes us, it makes us allow us to uh, just keep going forward in a positive way. It's like she's moved somewhere else energetically. Like the, the, the amount of space that she takes up in your world's is the same, maybe even more, uh, because you're all carrying her forward in such different ways through, you know, through soda, through your book, through all of these different things that you do. But yeah, that um, that energy levels become integrated. Exactly, and and we we've always wanted to make sure we mem- remember Laura not just as someone who was perfect or saint like, but someone who was human and. We laugh about her sometimes. We talk about what she would have thought about different events. Uh, and it, it makes her still real. And it, we, we talk about her often, and that keeps her alive as well in our family. I think that's such a perfect spot to let people know where they can find you as well as your book, Permission to Thrive. Well, so my book can be found on my website, which um, easy to remember. It's susanangelmiller.com. Uh, so the book can be purchased there. And what I'm doing now, uh, what I'm doing now is I'm speaking on the topics of grief and empathy, resilience, post-traumatic growth, and the miracle of organ donation. 
So I'm trying to educate people about the topics that I've learned so much about. And I'm so glad I wrote the book because it means that the messages that I've learned can then be transmitted to other people. And uh, it, it, the, it's a ripple effect and it, it makes it a pos- It makes what Laura went through have some meaning. And I think that's where we can remind ourselves of our power in a place when we feel powerless is that we are the ones who get to create purpose and meaning from what happened. Susan, thank you so much for coming on, coming back today. I had, I hate to say, so much fun reading your book, but it was truly uh, a roller coaster of an experience. And again, just like you took your your brain out of your body as you were grieving and shared it with all of us. And I just think that's so incredibly cool. So thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us today. Well, thanks for doing what you're doing to educate people about a topic that we often don't want to talk about. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you this week to Susan Angel Miller, whose book Permission to Thrive is still stuck in my mind. Susan came back by continuing to speak Laura's name, discovering this concept of post-traumatic growth, and connecting to her daughter's legacy through organ donation. You can find a link to Susan's website where you can find her book Permission to Thrive in the show notes. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live hangout time with me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby Our next live hangout is June 24th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text me personally at 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. One-on-one grief coaching is a powerful way to sit across from your loss and say, what do you have to teach me? If you're ready to start sharing your story or you're looking for tools, exercises, and a map forward in the aftermath of loss, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching to fill out an interest form. Grief is a personal experience, but we don't have to go it alone. My heart and ears are here to witness and companion your grief story, and I would be honored to provide a foundation for you as we explore, construct, and navigate your own coming back.
Find out more and get in touch for a free 30-minute consultation call at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. Give your grief the gift of coaching at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching.